Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Von Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine. In each issue, we feature in-depth interviews, narrated essays, and stories exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Robert McFarlane is the author of The Old Ways, The Wild Places, Mountains of the Mind, Landmarks, The Lost Words, and most recently, Underland. His work has been adapted for film and television, and he is the recipient of the E.M. Foster Award for Literature and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He lives in Cambridge, England, where he is a fellow of the University of Cambridge. I had a chance to sit down with Robert in April and talk about his work and his lyrical relationship with language and landscapes. In our discussion of the half-seen things that lurk in his newest book, Underland, the gathering of words for his acclaimed book, Landmarks, and the summoning spells of the lost words, Robert explores how the precision of utterance, a grammar of reciprocity, and an attentive practice of naming can summon wonder in our encounters with place. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today and uh, getting a chance to explore your work and uh, this ongoing journey of the language of place that you have been developing uh, for many years. And I guess my first question is really a sense of, of where this comes from inside of you, uh, because so much of your work focuses on this relationship to the place and the connection to the landscapes forests, waterways, pathways, and other natural spaces in your home in the United Kingdom. And it almost feels as if you're developing or sharing a language of place, a way of using words that creates a real intimacy for the reader with that place, even if you're thousands of miles away like I am today. And and I think one of the reasons it's so effective, um, and maybe this is my assumption, but is that I feel your connection and your relationship and your love of these places and these landscapes so vividly. It comes through very strongly. And so I'm curious to learn a bit about your journey and how you both became so drawn to the landscapes and places you write about and specifically drawn to the language of place. Well, uh, language and landscape are, are, are the two uh, braids, I guess, that have uh, twined and, and untwined in my life and my my writing to this point. I I teach in a literature department, but really, I think I'm a bit more of a geographer these days. And I have been fascinated by how language is both our our our, our tightest limit, our event horizon, when it comes to um, apprehending and uh, approximating to the landscapes in which we live and the nature with which we share our lives, broadly speaking. Um, But also this extraordinary possibility and opportunity it holds. There's a paradox at the heart of all this, which is that, of course, language is not, in in our sense of it, a, a natural capacity. I think I write somewhere in in landmarks that granite granite has no grammar. Light does not use a syntax. Robins do not speak in syllables as we would recognize them. And so language is always late for its subject in nature. So I'm I'm fascinated both by by language's affordance when it comes to thinking about and shaping our relations with place and what we might uneasily call nature, 
but I'm also interested in the binds that it places us within. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I get a sense you've spent a lot of time in the spaces you write about. Um, was this something you always had an affinity for, the, the natural in- environments of Great Britain, or is it something that was learned over time? Well, I, 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 I love listening to people. I love talking, uh, as I know you do, uh, but, but even more I love listening. And so it's, lo- it's long be- been my habit to travel to landscapes that fascinate me and to talk to people who know them very well, profoundly well, whether that be through through work, uh, through um, through science, as it were, through art, through poetry, or just through long everyday acquaintance, and these subtleties of relation that emerge through chronic contact, through chronic relationships with places, uh, cities, as well as as it were, moorlands, they they fascinate me. So. I've always I've always asked questions of people who live in places, but I've also poetry has been uh, a huge um, force and presence in my life. I mean, I the three the three poets who I met earliest were the three H's. They were Ted Hughes, uh, Seamus Heaney, and Gerard Manley Hopkins. And in a way, that 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 troika are the are the three poets for whom words have a kind of palp and a heft that is as strong as a pebble or a, a, a gale. And I was fascinated by writers who who fought and sought to give to their language aspects of matter and who sought to give to matter aspects of language. And was it being in these spaces that initially, you know, because I know you have a background in, in mountaineering, um, yes. and you spent a lot of time, um, I guess, you know, out there in the cold, uh, you know, <laughs> high altitude <laughs> environments. Yep. And, and was it being in these places or the places that you journey to on your way to the peak that prompted you to kind of seek out these poets as a way of understanding what you were feeling? That's a that's a fascinating question. I mean, in some ways, be, being in uh, high mountains, in in storm or, or 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 at real altitude, is is a is a is an experience that sort of batters language into uselessness. In many ways, you you fall back on on practicalities, on tool use, on rope skills, on navigation, and language isn't isn't much use to you. It doesn't get much grip. Up there in in the high mountains, and I, I love that really. I mean, I, I I quite often on the um on the summit of a mountain just say wow, <laughs> which is not the uh, the the lo- the loquacious response to the view laid out before me. But you know, it, mountains are they live in deep time. They 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 occupy um, phases and 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 scopes of uh, of of place and time that that make a mockery of language. So yes, in one sense, a long, long acquaintance with mountains as a walker, as a mountaineer, and um, as a reader um, made me aware of how, how useless language is in its relations with with place. But it did also make me look for a, a language of purchase and attention. And so, for example, Gaelic, Scots, Scottish Gaelic, as opposed to Irish Gaelic, though the two are uh, closely related, has this fabulously refined Lexis for for mountains. I mean, there are there are thirty to forty words for the top of a mountain alone, and each one 
slightly distinguishes between the kind of peak. So a skur, S-G-U-R-R, is, a, is, is gen- generally a sharp peak. Um, and a stob, S-T-O-B, is also tends to be quite an abrupt peak. Other words discriminate between tops that have corries beneath them or tops that look like, that are longer, have ridges running off them uh, that might look like Ben Kruachen, uh, has a long summit ridge. So the, the, one, when one looks closely, one finds that there are languages of fine discrimination at work, not only in our cities or our technologies, where, of course, we such languages proliferate, but in our landscapes as well. Hmm. I mean, I, I guess that you know brings us to to the work that you took on for your book Landmarks, um, which in many ways is a celebration of the power words hold through their specificity, as you just described. Um, you know, and in reading the book, I, you know, you feel there's a certain magic um, that comes across between that relationship between the landscapes and the people who developed those specific ways of describing those landscapes. Um, you know, terms, I think, as you said, enchant our relations with nature. And in the book, you know, for those who haven't read it, uh, you, you compile glossaries of words from all over Great Britain that capture that certain magical intimacy with the natural world, world words that um, in many cases are now rarely spoken or are losing relevancy are in, or in some cases even being lost. And when I was rereading uh, some of those words, I was again struck by that specificity and how the yeah. loss of these words is yet another example of how we've simplified and homogenized these incredibly mm-hmm. expressive and rich ways of describing the world around us and often instead replace uh, them in, and put them into broad categories. Uh, you know, you talk about how, you know, there's a, so many words for meadow or field or stream or mountaintop, but instead we have these broad categories, which everything is supposed to fit into. Yeah. And so I, I'm really curious, um, you know, to, to hear what your perspective is on what you think is lost when that specificity is gone. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think the, this, this, the important first answer is that there is, a, there is an, an ethical and a political dimension to what is lost when specificity is lost, which is that landscapes that are generically apprehended and generically described are more vulnerable to, to misuse um, however we define that. And an example of that might be, I, I write in the first chapter of that book about the the moorland of Lewis, which is one of the, the northern Outer Hebridean islands. Um, and moor is self-similar. That's what it does. There's more and there's more and there's more more as the, uh, as the old joke goes over here. And if you are not, um, uh, if, if, if your perceptions are, are not uh, inclined to apprehend the, the detail of moorland, its ecological complexities, the extraordinary work it does in terms of carbon storage, the, the community home it provides for invertebrates uh, as well as migrating birds, as, and, and the astonishing colorscape and cultural ecology that it very often encodes and makes possible, then you look across a moor and you see uh, a generic space, a waste space, uh, a wild place, if you want to call it that, but uh, which is to say somewhere that can be used or converted because it is of no use as it stands. And I've always been interested in community resistance to large corporate, as it were, misprisions of places. So on the Isle of Lewis, a uh, complex scenario, but, uh, uh, you know, the world, the, what Europe's at the time, largest onshore wind farm was due to be 
effectively planted on the Lewis moorland. And these were going to be gigantic turbines, which would occupy the entirety of this, the more inner moor of this sizable island. Um, now, there are very good reasons why we need onshore and renewable onshore wind turbines and renewable energy, but this was not an appropriate development. But the develop, for the developers, it became important to mobilize the idea of this landscape as self-similar, as generic, and therefore as waste-slash-disposable. And similar conflicts have been happening um, in in Sheffield in 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 Britain recently, where uh, a large scale PFI uh, contract council uh, private contractor contract has committed to felling thousands of street trees. And again, the battle became over: well, what's the use of these trees? And to the to the contract, as it were, to to capitalism in its rawest, uh, most hungry form, the trees were merely a street furniture that was undesirable. But to the inhabitants, the local community who put together this extraordinary um, campaign of resistance over over nearly two years, which has met with a remarkable success in the courts and in the hearts uh, of people, uh, these trees were were profoundly subtle, and it, it came down to a battle over description. So it seems to me for these reasons, when, when, it, when we decide what we're doing with infrastructure and when we decide what we're doing with our less modified landscapes, precision of utterance and a kind of grammar of reciprocity and registration is profoundly important. Hmm. And, and of course, what happens when wonder is removed from those landscapes by simplifying and changing the way we describe them. And, and, and I want to uh, share a quote of yours that really struck me. Um, the right names well used can act as portals into the more than human world of bird, animal, tree, and insect. Good names open onto mystery, grow knowledge, and summon wonder. And wonder is an essential survival skill for the Anthropocene. So I, I love that quote, and it and it and it seems to be so important because you know as you describe, you know people care about these trees, but imagine how much more they would even care about those trees if they knew every single way of describing them in the way that you list ways of describing trees in in landmarks. I mean, look, there is bad naming. Let's let's be absolutely clear about this. Naming is a uh, you know, an ethically um, neutral act until it's directed. And there's all sorts of bad naming. The Trump administration knows very well the power of of naming to uh, direct and disguise and control attention and, and possibility uh, within bureaucracy. And so, you know, a lot of work has been done by by many groups and many individuals, including uh, Rebecca Solnit, on the forms of renaming that the Trump administration mm. is undertaking. So there's, there's, there's definitely such a thing as bad naming, uh, but there is good naming too. And uh, that good naming might be political. It might be uh, the, the, the refusal to describe the natural world as uh, the environment, which I, I, I don't do any longer. I find that a problematically chilly and alienating term. I tend to use the phrase living world or natural world, not to talk about climate change, but to talk about climate breakdown. Um, These are small acts of renaming which have considerable political encodings and consequences. Um, And and then uh, at a kind of gentler level, there are, it seems to me, these these wonderful um, uh, histories and othernesses that are opened into and onto by um, by forms of of common naming, shared 
naming. Um, uh, we just an example of that might be the dandelion, uh, which is often dismissed as a weed, often mowed here in the UK. Uh, it, it, it flowers first in March. It's a really important species for early emerging pollinators, bees kind of coming out drowsy and needing a good feed. They land on on red nettles and they land on celandines and they land on dandelions. Um, dandelion comes from don de lion, the French uh, meaning tooth of the lion or teeth of the lion, and that's a reference to the serrated edge of its leaves. So there's a wonderful, already a wonderful vividness to that name. And then the dandelion has dozens, scores of other common names, each of which refers to an aspect of its involvement in, um, in in human culture and human perception. One of them is piss en lit, which means piss the bed, because <laughs> dandelions <laughs> dandelions have a diuretic property. Um, but uh, others, you know, son of the grass, um, fallen star of the football field, they speak of a kind of fondness and a familiarity. And so these, to me, are examples of good, gentle naming. Mm, mm, I love I love that. Uh, you, you know, you know, another thing that really struck me in, in in what you you know present in landmarks is is this idea that uh, the words assembled in your book um, are a possibility of how we can rewild our contemporary language for landscape. Um, mm-hmm. you, you describe it as that, that, that being the hope, so to speak. Um, yeah. But this raised a question for me, which is that you know, do you think this is possible when so much of the wildness that inspired the words that you assembled? no longer exists or, you know, is so drastically different? Hmm. Yeah, it's a a really good question. So, uh, I mean, this idea of rewilding, by which I mean uh, this rich regeneration of place, of possibility, of hope, a thriving of diversity as opposed to monoculture. This is a cultural as well as an ecological project, it seems to me. And it's one that celebrates diversity. And that's why when I tried to pull to to gather this word hoard, as I call it, which is a phrase from uh, Beowulf, from from the early literature, the early poetry of of, of these islands, um, I, I, I didn't want it to be the, the word hoard of one language, English, which is itself anyway a mongrel global tongue. I wanted to delve into the many languages and dialects and sub-dialects and new uh, a new apprehensions of place that are underway. So that there are, I think there are 33 or 35 languages, dialects and sub-dialects represented in the glossaries of landmarks. And they range from Scots, Scots uh, Scottish Gaelic, um, Cornish, that comes from the Britonic uh, uh, language groups, um, through to English regional terms that are different. As soon as you cross a county boundary or a, or a river... Um, there's a lovely word, um, smoot, S-M-O-U-T, which means the the hole in the bottom of a stone wall up in Cumbria, which is left so that small creatures can move through it, but sheep can't get out. Hmm. Um, and that sounds a lovely benevolent uh, l- little bit of vernacular architecture, but actually it's also a means of trapping that food. So the people would often dig little uh, pitfall traps at smoot holes in in stone walls so that a rabbit would come through the smoot trap smoot hole and drop into the trap for the part but these days they don't tend to be trapped whereas if you go down to sussex uh, you'll find that a hole in the base of a hedgerow left by the movement of an animal is called a smooze or a smoise s-m-e-u-s-e 
And that word has been a really good example of how what looks like an archaic term is actually still alive and also has this huge vivifying power for the eye. Um, I, that's a, this, this word smooth is a, is a kind of key word in the book and it's, it's taken as an example of how learning a word um, sharpens the eye and changes the vision. And people, I've had so many letters from, and emails from people saying, God, as soon, since I've known that word, I just see those little holes that creatures make everywhere, in the fences, <laughs> in the hedgerows. And that's, that's both a, a sort of trivial recreational perceptual act but it's also attuning into the amazing density of kind of commutes and convivial life more than human life that we share our landscapes with that but that generally goes unregarded unvalued and unaccommodated but at the same time you know those words that you're describing were developed at a time where it seems like there was more time spent yep. in those spaces and now we're yep. in a time where most people are not in those spaces, you know, or they're there for recreation purposes, or if they're there because they're farming or they're living in a, in a rural existence, it's so different than it was before. And, you know, so I, I, and it's something I think about a lot, which is that as, you know, we adjusted this change, you know, this incredible change that we're dealing with of loss yep. of, loss of landscape in, in so many ways, loss of, of diversity and loss of, you know, a really living, vibrant system that supports us. How are we going to describe that? Um, mm. And how are we going to develop, um, you know, as, as we all are creatures of story and we all are creatures of language, yep. how are we going to express that in a language of loss, so to speak? And I, and I don't think it's a coincidence that here we are in this incredible renaissance of nature writing, of environmental filmmaking, of mm-hmm. incro- incredible art being created all over the world that is a response to this, of trying to grapple with and develop this language. Well, you're uh, I, absolutely right. And I think always at this time of a, of, of a line from... Brecht, uh, Brecht says, will there be singing in the dark times? Yes, there will be singing about the dark times. And I think this, this, this great choir, this multi-voiced, polyvocal, diverse set of, of, of songs is, is being lifted and raised at the moment. Some of them are angry, some of them are plangent, some of them are hopeful and, and, and future-oriented. Very few of them are um, a sort of... Uh, leisured and lazy, I think. And so I think loss has become, the sense of loss has become hugely animating to to the discourse. And I, this is what, and it's animating of politics too. And I think this, um, you know, I, on, I'm speaking to you on the day of yet another climate strike of, by young people. And they are they're they're in Cambridge uh, now. They were there. Um, I was with them a month ago uh, with my daughter, my six-year-old son, who is um, absolutely uh, mesmerised and horrified by climate change and what it connotes. And what it connotes to him is loss. Um, this so loss. I think this idea that loss as an experience is always a, a sort of pa- interpassive, elegiac mode is wrong now. I think it is it is an energizing mode politically uh, uh, and culturally. So, I guess I have uh, I would also say that this this ugly uh, world of making that we are bringing into being that we we call the Anthropocene, the the um, Cthulhuocene, the uh, Capitalocene. These many names that we're stuttering out for this epoch that we're making 
is calling this sort of second order of Lexus into being. And that, that, that order of Lexus is, is another kind of neologizing. It's the neologizing for uh, microplastics, um, nurdles, mermaid's tears. These attempts to get hold of the mess we're making. Um, plastiglomerates, this ugly, hard-to-speak, hard-to-swallow word for a new possible horizon marker substance in Anthropocene stratigraphy, which is what happens when you melt down um, coagulates of plastic, having a campfire on a beach in in Hawaii, and it gradually, the melting plastic picks up the sand and the organic matter and the other kinds of debris and the bird feathers, and then sets and forms this odd new hybrid substance that geologists have called plastiglomerate. Well, you know, we're making, we're always making new stuff. Um, and as we make new stuff, of course, we make new language for it. So I'm, I'm fascinated by our attempts to speak the Anthropocene, to speak geotraumatics, to speak solastalgia. But do you think that's actually a way of honoring and really grieving? Or is it just a response of survival of kind of trying to find the names <laughs> to, to describe the craziness? Well, without, without wanting to sound too essentialist, I think we are a, 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 a naming species. Um, we, we, we have um, some of the oldest stories in, in, in world culture are the stories of, of, of name giving. And so I think it is, uh, you're right to uh, find it a, 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 the beginnings of a response. I think it is a means of pointing, denoting, comprehending. That, that is the, the sort of first level predecessor to 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 reaction. Um, an example of that might be Glenn Albrecht's influential term solastalgia, which I've already mentioned once, which he he coins after working with communities whose um, landscapes were being profoundly disrupted by uh, drought in Australia, uh, long-term um, anthropogenically induced drought, and by by big mining, big corporation mining endeavors in these small communities in um, in Australia. And he realised that what these people were experiencing was the um, uh, was the loss of their landscape without ever leaving it. The landscape was changing around them due to these huge forces. And so they were they were living in a new place without ever having moved. And he said, "Well, this isn't nostalgia. We need a new word for it. We need solastalgia." Was the coinage he came up with. And again, the response to that word now over fifteen, twenty years. If you Google it, you'll find so many uh, think pieces and essays uh, around it. is is fascinating to me. Suddenly, people think, "Ah, yes, that's what's happening." The um, campaigners in Sheffield recognised it as what was happening to them. They lived in a hugely forested city, a city with a canopy. Suddenly the canopy was being cut. They were experiencing solastalgia. The the forest, the the urban forest in which they lived was becoming thinned and felled. And and, and that was part of their response. So again, maybe that's an example of how a kind of ugly language for the Anthropocene isn't just descriptive, discursive, it's, it's active. So perhaps that's a good segue into maybe listening to some samples of um, what has been created by this wonderful group of, of artists and musicians who were inspired to um, to create sonifications of some of the words and phrases that you include in Landmarks. Um, and the project, which is slated for release in a few months, is being headed by Andrew Tesselmeyer of Hotel Neon. 
who has kindly shared some of those tracks um, from the album with us to listen to today. So I think we've got three tracks today. Um, and uh, I'll let you uh, explain uh, the tracks and the words and, and, and what they mean. So th- this amazing project just came out of the blue to me and uh, the, this this extraordinary ensemble of, of field recordists, musicians, uh, sonifiers, um, who've gathered from around the world and around cultural traditions. So the first one we're going to hear is uh, Benoit Piolard's response to a, a, a very specific Gallic phrase from, from the Isle of Lewis, uh, which uh, is a two-word phrase, runach muim, um, uh, apologies to any fluent Gaelic speakers out there who may be uh, <laughs> regretting my pronunciation of that, but I think it's pretty. Uh, it literally means mackerel moor, but it's used as a phrase to 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 compress down and register the shadows that are cast by clouds on moorland on a sunny, windy day. So it's it's a it's it's a phenomenon of weather. Of perception, it's born of labour in place in different kinds of weather. It's a wonderful metaphor that that transfers the the mottled patterns of a mackerel's flank onto, which is the, one of the fish that form the main would have formed main diet in in that area onto the moorland itself. And it's it's also astonishingly compressive. It 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 compresses a an atmosphere and a and a and a, and a complex phenomena down into into a few syllables. And this is uh, Benoit's uh, musical response to it.
so when I'm when I'm listening to to that track, I mean, I, I really uh, actually do feel like I'm both lying on a moor, looking <laughs> up at clouds over my head, and then also looking at shadows. You know, I think it really does a quite remarkable job of of uh, taking you into a sonic experience of dimensionality. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's that, quite remarkable. That's brilliantly put. Yeah, it, absolutely. The dimensionality, I think, is 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 what what really sets that apart. There's a, a John Constable has a lovely verb. He talks about in one of his journal entries, I think it is about skying. And that that meant lying on his back and studying studying clouds. And obviously, he's one of our great great artists of light and weather and, and cloud, particularly. Um, this feels like a, a, a track about skying, but as you say, it's not just looking up. It's also that 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 open, fleeting movement of of light across uh, open ground. And I always put in mind also of. There's a wonderful line from a Gerard Manny Hopkins poem where he says, "Glory be to God for dappled things," and and this seemed a, again a celebration of dappledness, of of diversity and movement and shift. Well, yeah, and also the fact that this is telling a story, and the story is is from you know grounded in the 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 phrase that it's come from, which tells a story too. Yes, yes. you know the moving ca- shadows cast by clouds on moorland on a sunny, windy day. I mean, that's a story. And if you said, you know, cloud moving, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still. It's not, we? a, no. <laughs> it's not a. It's not a story. It's uh, you know, it's an explanation of an action without any of that subtlety and poetry and lyricism that is the human relationship with the landscape yeah so you know it's 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 remarkable okay so should we listen to another another track yeah so this this is by hotel neon which is andrew one of andrew tasmar's uh uh, sort of bands projects um himself and this is uh titled rhyme or this response to the word rhyme and that's not the the rhyme in the poetic sense that's rhyme r-i-m-e I love rhyme. I have a, a long relationship with rhyme. Rhyme is a kind of ice or, or a frost, if you prefer. And it, you will recognize it if you see a photograph of it. It's that extraordinary feathered ice uh, that grows in very cold, windy conditions. And it, it forms these amazing kind of boas of, of, uh, of plumage on mountaintops, boulders, trig points, whatever it comes into contact with. What is fascinating to me, particularly and metaphoric and suggestive about rhyme, is that counterintuitively it grows into the wind. So you look at rhyme ice, you see its feathers, and you assume that they've been blown by the prevailing wind outwards. In fact, rhyme leans into the the direction of the wind because it's caused by supercooled water droplets brought by that wind freezing instantly on contact with a with a cold surface the existing surface of the ice so actually when you see rhyme it it grows into the wind it gives you that direction for me metaphorically as somebody who's always gone to the mountains and found myself in some way grown by them rhyme is a kind of is the ice of my heart as it were <laughs> so <laughs> so here is here is rhyme
Yeah, that, I mean, that's another beautiful, beautiful track. Um, in, you know, it, to me, it, I really feel both the kind of the, the, the beauty and the joy, but also there's a little bit of danger there yep. and the coldness yeah. and, um, you know, it's, it's a bit dramatic. <laughs> I, 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 it is. And, and I think it catches that sense of, of gale and cold, as you say. But for me also, that idea of rhyme growing by enrichment, by, by contact, by building on itself. And I think when you have that architectural notion of something that, that, that leans into the arduous in order to, to grow, I think that the, the the music is doing something very clever there in in the way that it it, it grows out of itself and into what is mm. coming at it. And what's the origin of rhyme? Where in the UK is it from? Yeah, it's, what language group? It's a Norse a Norse word actually. So it comes in uh, rima. Rima is um is is the is the is the Norse origin of this, and so it comes in as as part of the Viking uh, legacy here. Um, and Gaelic itself. Uh, and and Scots and of course English have internalised many many um, many Norse words and so there are there are all sorts of interesting affinities that register this Atlantic arc of cultural consequence and trading and and relation that 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 actually is in a way far far more consequential linguistically than than the continental the the southern continental axis so there are these mm. yeah so Rima. Rima. So uh, we've got one more track we're going to listen to, which, uh, you know, kind of segues into your latest um, book, Underland. And, and this is called The Tunnel by Richard Skelton, whose recording is in Word Circle. So could you give us a little background about the tunnels and 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 what inspired Richard to take this on? Yes, so R- Richard Skelton is one of the most extraordinary uh, musicians, uh, writers, poets, cultural presences. I think in 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 Britain at the moment, and I I would urge listeners to seek out Corblestone Press and the work he does with Autumn Richardson. He's a musician uh, as well as a as well as a writer. I, I wrote a chapter about Richard um, in Landmarks, which is called Underland, and. In, it describes a journey we took under a raven's nest into some old mine workings, and we passed through what was a felt like a gateway space, uh, two big portal stones, a, a big a big yew tree, a holly tree rather, growing above this entrance to these these mine workings in the northwest Lake District, and we followed this tunnel until its collapse point, and there we sat and we felt this extraordinary uh, breathing. We were holding candles, uh, which is our only light, and, and the, the, the flame of the candle would, would lean towards the collapsed s- a roof of this tunnel and then would be kind of exhaled and would lean back towards us and then would lean in again, almost sucked in by the breath of the mountain. Um, it was a very powerful experience of, of a sense of a lively earth. And I think Richard's track the tunnel here comes in part out of that that time we spent together and and what i wrote about it subsequently
when I listen to that track, it's very, very different to me than the previous two. Um, you know, I, I really do feel like I am now below ground and hmm. there's something pushing down on top of me. Hmm. Um, you know, it really takes you into a space and it, it's got a darker quality to it too. Like you're not, st- not just in the fact that maybe light is not above you, but also maybe you're, you're looking down into the depths of something. Hmm. That's, that's a great description of it. That Those big bass drones that have just burring away under there, hollowing things out, deepening things, that reverberant space. And also for me, that again, that sense of rock as, as lively given time, as breathing, as, as animate um, within deep time. So I, I think it's a fabulous piece that stands in, as you say, in wonderful contrast to the openness and the light of, and the, of rhyme and of Runech Moem. Yeah. I mean, was this journey with, with Richard um, that you undertook while writing Landmarks kind of a, a precursor to what you ended up exploring in your latest book? Or is, or was that already underway? Was Underland uh, underway? <laughs> was Underland underway? Uh, uh, Underland was underway. And uh, Underland has really been underway since uh, the very earliest signs were 2010, that extraordinary summer when uh, the Icelandic volcano erupted, when the Chilean miners were trapped in the in the golden copper mine in the Atacama Desert, San Jose mine, and um, and also when the Deepwater Horizon blowout occurred, that all happened in one spring and summer, April to August, and uh, that that was a that was a summer when you couldn't not think of the underland and what was what was beneath us rising up to us or or taking down from us and so i think the the book underland had its its first origins there um and then it's taken so long to to write and to think it's a big book it's 500 pages it's it's really the the last decade of 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 anthropocene um uh, thinking and thinking about language and and place in and journeys into darkness that we have made you you described it as the longest, strangest, deepest, darkest book you've ever written and probably <laughs> ever will write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah that, that's about right, I think. And um, it's taken a lot out of me. And I think uh, in, in, in terms of language, that's partly because I, re- I realized very late that what I was writing about was what might be called obscenity uh, that which is obscene is is that which we do not wish to speak it's that that we do not even wish to see we wish to, we wish to keep it off seen um and that's tended to be what we do with darkness and the underland it's where we've put the things that are either too dangerous to us to to keep on the surface nuclear waste might be a material example of that but also ghosts uh, the dead, the feared dead, but it's also where we've put the things that we love so much that we want to keep them safe from the surface, and that, of course, includes the bodies of of those we love. And the the one of the early chapters of the book considers the earliest known cemetery in 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 Britain, which is in a cave in the Mendips called Everline's Hole, where. 10,000 years ago, these under, undernourished, um, challenged uh, early hunter-gatherers nevertheless took their dead 
to this place and interred them over the course of around a century, moving the stone across the door and back again to keep the animals out. So there is a, a tenderness of burial uh, that, that was at work in that practice that fascinated me. And so I guess there's a very different kind of place-based language that exists beneath the surface. Hmm. There is, and in a way it's one that we don't disclose to ourselves. It's the language often of, if we think about the ways in which underworlds and underlands figure in, in story and in myth and in culture, they tend to be um, trauma, grief, um, the, the, the unconscious, the undermined. This is a, the place of half-seen things and part-articulated utterance. Uh, so finding a language for this very often inhuman realm, a realm of matter, before it is a realm of people predominantly, was, uh, yeah, it took time. It took a long time. Well, we're featuring one of the chapters in Underland in this issue of the magazine. And the chapter is called Understory and takes you on a journey into Epping Forest uh, in London with a plant scientist named Merlin Sheldrake. And in the chapter, you explore the implications of what some are calling the wood wide web, this subterranean network of tree fungus mutualism that was discovered by the forest ecologist Suzanne Simard, revealing not only how trees communicate with each other, but also how they care for each other, that there is a, a social network of sorts between trees. And as Simard beautifully describes, that there are beautiful structures and finely adapted languages of the forest network. And in the chapter, you write about how our current way of using language to describe this non-human language falls short and that perhaps we need an entirely new language system to talk about fungi. We need to speak in spores, as you say. So, you know, it seems to me like you're talking about a language that is animate, um, that is alive. Yeah, well, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I mean, language, well, where to, where to begin with that? The first thing I'd say is that um, this extraordinary sort of yield of the underland, that we'd, this, this mutualism, fungi, tree mutualism, the mycorrhizal network has been probably in existence for around 450 million years. Uh, we, we've really begun to see it in the last 20. And this is a, a great example of, um, of the way the underland keeps secrets from us. It's the most surprising realm, really. Um, the second thing to say is that since it's been disclosed by Simard and, and, and others um, increasingly and uh, popularized, it's, we've tried to make sense of it. Of course we do. That's what we do. Uh, but the kingdom of fungi is so other, is so extraordinary and unlike are us and make such a nonsense of our categories that we end up doing what we always do, which is um, uh, sort of converting this structure to our own metaphors and our own understandings. And there are, I became interested in how there are two broad um, movements to interpret the wood wide web. One is the one you've already uh, implicitly endorsed, which is a sort of socialist vision of the Wood Wide Web as, as enabling trees to care for one another, share resources, distribute uh, right, distribute right. wellness, as it were. Too. So if a tree is sick, it will be it will it will it will be um, given to by 
uh, by, by healthy trees. So this is a sort of national health service as well as a wood wide web going on there. Uh, and the other is the opposite. The other is the neoliberal account. The wood wide web is just a facilitator for a an aggressive marketeering, free marketeering forest where where it just means that trees can kind of compete with one another better and in more interesting ways. Um, and obviously both of these are projections. Both of them are are implicit in the poetics of the science that is uh, that is used to interpret and represent and explore these this phenomenon but but they are human projections and so i i sort of when i was walking this forest with this extraordinary man merlin um who conjured it all open for me and and really rendered the ground transparent for me i uh, and he both came to feel a frustration with this automatic move that we make to to um to anthropomorphize even even when we think we are doing pure science as it were there is no such thing so uh so so how do we talk about it well of course we don't have the language for it but but maybe and here we loop perhaps back to our early discussion about landmarks perhaps we need a language that that is alert to reciprocity alert to forms of vivacity in the more than human world that uh, our conventional language forms do not register. I'm interested in grammar as well as single words. Grammar is, if you like, language's underland. It's where meaning sediments over long periods of time and becomes ideology, effectively. Single words are obviously a- actions, they're choices made on the surface. Uh, they have deep histories, they have roots in that sense. But grammar grammar is the is the sedimented version of many forms of choice made by cultures and individuals over many years so if we think of grammar as as, as having an underland well the underland of our grammar of of english as 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 i understand it to be conventionally used is not one that re- that recognizes the more than human world with richness respect reciprocity and legitimacy I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Lost Words. Um, And this is your recent collaboration with artist Jackie Morris. Uh, And it's a beautiful book. Um, Some call it a children's book. I think that's not the case. I think (laughs) think adults should be reading it. And it it has an incredible quality of bringing you into the physicality of the book itself, which I love because it's this huge, large book. I mean, it, it, it takes over your whole lap. Uh, when you're reading it and you can't quite hold it up. It needs to, you need to it, it, sit it on your lap or a big table and then you're engulfed in it. And, and it includes um, poems or spells, as you describe them, paired with Jackie's remarkable paintings uh, of words that have been removed from the Junior Oxford English Dictionary. So I wonder if you could talk about the genesis of this project. Yeah, so the, the uh, Oxford Junior Dictionary is, sort of one of the various dictionaries available to um, primary school age children in this country. So probably five to seven year olds, six to eight year olds, very, very widely used. And in the 2007 edition, it was noticed by a sharp eyed reader that uh, it has about 2000 words in it, this dictionary. So it's very limited necessarily. Uh, but it was noticed that these the, these words had been taken out and uh, the words were acorn, bluebell, catkin, conquer, willow, wren, heron. These very common um, names for common 
nature, or in some cases decreasingly common nature, Skylark and Starling are having a really hard time in this country right now. Um, it wasn't the dictionary's fault. I always say, I, you know, if I hadn't been a, a writer, I would have liked to have become a, a stratigrapher, lichenologist, or lexicographer. And um, I, I think lexicographers are awesome. Uh, and dictionaries are generally descriptive rather than prescriptive. They tell us how language is being used. And what this dictionary told us was that language, uh, these words were not being used by children or for children as much as they had been. So they made way for other words. And those words included attachment, block graph, committee, broadband, voicemail, and so on. So you know, it, it, was a, it was a pinch point, a kind of symptom of this uh, tech nature face-off, which is itself a false opposition. But it became hugely animating to conversations around nature, childhood, and and so forth in this country. Sometimes uh, alarmist in an alarmist way, and sometimes I think in what has become a very creative and productive way. So Jackie contacted me and said she wanted to make a what she called a beautiful protest about about this um, th- this idea of childhood and nature and language um, schisming. And so, how did you choose the words uh, that have been uh, removed? I mean, there were because there were quite a few more than what ended up in the book. Yeah, there were about forty uh, quote unquote nature words. Um, I wanted to make a, a sort of A to Z. I could there was no Z because we don't have zebras in, <laughs> in this country. But but I got from acorn to wren, and um, by way of and we took twenty words, and for each word I wrote a spell, a summoning spell to be spoken aloud by by parent or by child or whoever read it. And we've been astonished by who has read it. And um, and Jackie would paint first the the object's absence. An absence of acorn is a is a field without trees in it. Then she would paint a, an icon on gold leaf. The acorn on its own set fabulously against gold leaf, like a like an icon, a religious icon, Orthodox Christian. And then she would paint the the object, the the being back in the landscape, uh, full of the ecosystem, fully in the ecosystem of which it was part and which it creates. So. Uh, an oak tree with its uh, with its butterflies and its moths and its owls and its leaves and its and the shade it gives and so it was a it was a thought experiment a kind of magical thinking about what might happen if you could summon back into the mouth what also should be summoned back into the landscape so that's why you call them spells because it's really an invocation uh, to remember and reconnect back with these birds or plants or creatures Exactly. Um, the other sense of spell is a is the prosaic one that each that I took the first letter of each uh, word and used those to begin the the stanzas. So each each spell is itself a spelling out of of a c o r n for acorn or h e r o n for heron. And the children, when the children are reading it, they they have fun finding these letters and spelling them together to make the word. Then speaking the spell. And and so it goes. And we released this kind of strange, wild creature of a book into the world in October 2017. And I remember the very first person, Simon McBurney, the great actor, was one of the first people ever to see a copy. And he held it up, just like you said. He said, this isn't a book, it's a landscape, as he sort of disappeared headfirst into it. And I thought, ah, wow, that's interesting. Um, and um, it, yes, it has lived a, a truly wild life this book uh, it continues to astonish me every day so so tell me a little bit about its impact because 
it, it's quite remarkable what's happened since the book has been released um, and how it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Yeah, well, in, in, in very simple figures, I think there are a quarter of a million copies of the book now in, in circulation in, in Britain and North America. Um, it's being translated into many languages. I'm having wonderful conversations with translators who are trying to put together my tongue twisters. Um, but but the, the, the more exciting sense is how it's been taken up in a grassroots sense as a, as a sort of activist uh, alchemical catalyst, I suppose you could say. Um, so fundraisers have sprung up across uh, Britain and increasingly in, in, in North America and Canada to to raise money to, to to place copies of the book in every primary school in a given city, county, country. The very first one of these, somebody raised nearly thirty thousand pounds. A bus driver raised nearly thirty thousand pounds to put a copy in every primary school, secondary school, and special school in all of Scotland. And the last of these are now being delivered a year and a half on. Some of them by sea kayak, some of them by boat up to the remote remoter schools on the on the more distant islands. Um, and whole networks of community uh, and individuals have come together to to take these books into schools, to talk to children about conservation, about nature, about loss, about um, creation, about how to make habitat. Um, it's also been uh, adapted into uh, theatre, into film, into many kinds of music from experimental classical music in America through to a huge uh, folk music concert and an album um, in, in this country, card games, puzzles. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's nothing to do with us anymore. It's, it's, it's to do with love and hope and fear and loss. I mean, it, it seems to have struck a deep chord within people to have this kind of reaction. And, you know, because it is much more than the fact that Adder or Bluebell or uh, Wren, um, Kingfisher, you know, has been removed from the dictionary. It's what it means, you know, and what people are reacting to, which is tremendously inspiring to see that that many people are up in arms about what it means to lose, um, you know, uh, these words from the basic, uh, you know, list of words which we think are important to teach children. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it is inspiring. And um, what's been exciting is what is 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 how um, it's particularly exciting to me is how it's been used to break down limits. So it's not that it's just going into rural schools in you know remote uh, mountainous parts of this country. It's going into all of London. So a charity took it, is delivering a copy into every inner city school. I, I've taught it in schools with four, where 40 to 60 languages are spoken in the playground. There's nothing exclusive about this. This is inclusive. It's being used a huge amount by um, a refugee, um, people working with refugee groups, uh, domestic abuse survivors. It's It's in hospices. It's become the walls of a hospital, a five-story hospital where children are rehabilitating um, from orthopedic injuries. Um, it's uh, it, it, the, the lost words of those who are suffering from Alzheimer's and associated degenerative diseases. It's being used to call those back. So it, it, it's, it, it is about nature, but it's also about what language can do um, metaphorically at a, at, a, at a bigger and more mobile uh, phase, as it were. And that 
that's why I say it's nothing to do with us anymore. I mean, we happen to have made this thing and released it, but it's become this sort of open source software uh, almost, and uh, people uh, adapt it. We, you know, we try and make that as possible as we can. Um, wherever people want to make things with it, they take it into inner city schools to to do performances with with the children. There are, um, and and so I think it's it, it, Rebecca Solnit tells these fabulous stories of hope in the dark. She says, "Never give up hoping, because the most extraordinary things can cascade from the tiniest of." Of triggers, and this has been my small involvement in um, a story of of hope in the dark, and I feel very very lucky to have have been part of it. But as I say, it's it's about far far bigger forces and circumstances that are absolutely of our Anthropocene moment. Hmm. Well, I wonder if you could uh, maybe close out our interview together and um, and share. A couple of these uh, of these spells. Yeah, I'd lo- I'd love to do that. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a a sort of happy one first, um, as it were. And um, this, so I have the book in front of me now. If you can hear me breathing slightly more heavily, it's because I'm trying to pick the thing up. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this is otter, and otters are actually having a wonderful time of it in Britain at the moment. They were heavily endangered due to river pollution and persecution in the 1970s. They're now back in every English county. That's a real conservation success story in this country. Um, if you listen, you might be able to hear the O-T-T-E-R spelt out, but I wanted to to create a kind of tumble-turning water twister of an otter spell that, that children could speak. And here goes. Otter enters river without falter. What a supple slider out of halt and into water. This shape shift as a sheer breath taker, a sure heart stopper, but you'll only ever spot a shadow flutter, bubble skein, and never, almost never, actual otter. This swift swimmer's a silver miner, with trout its oar it bores each black pool deep and deeper, delves up current steep and steeper, turns the water inside out, then inside outer. Ever dreamed of being otter, that utter underwater thunderbolter, that shimmering twister? Run to the riverbank, otter dreamer. Slip your skin and change your matter. Pour your outer being into otter and enter now as otter without falter into water. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) I don't normally get all the way through without (laughs) tripping up on an otter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it does have that tongue twister quality to it, doesn't it? That's beautiful. The amazing thing is that Jackie Morris has now memorized that. So one of the things she does on stage is she paints an otter using water, uh, using sumi Japanese ink and water drawn from rivers in which otters live. And she speaks the otter spell while she paints these incredible otters out of water. Um, she summons them back right there. So the the one I'll end with um, is one that's already been read at a couple of weddings and a, and a couple of funerals, as they say. Um, and it's about... It's called uh, it's called lark, and skylarks are not having a good time in this country. They're they're heavily down um, uh, due to their nesting habitats just just becoming diminished. And of course, they have this, this extraordinary reputation for their their song, their song of joy. Um, uh, and and uh, you know, nature doesn't just cheer us; it can also sadden us, as we've as we've discussed. And I, you know, we all have our. Uh, mental health challenges and um when i was going 
writing this i was i was i was having a, a tough time and i was thinking about depression and i was thinking about joy and um this is the the luck spell which is about all of those things tumbled up into one little astronaut where have you gone and how is your song still torrenting on aren't you short of breath as you climb higher up there in the thin air with your magical song still tumbling on Right now I need you, for my sadness has come again and my heart grows flatter. So I'm coming to find you by following your song, keeping on into deep space, past dying stars and exploding suns, to where, at last, little astronaut, you sing your heart out at all dark matter. Hmm. Yeah. So, and that was, that's been sung by... Um, by an amazing uh, musician called Jim Molina. Um, incredible setting that um, stops me short every time I, I hear it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today, Rob, and uh, get a deeper sense of the breadth of your work and the power of language to bring us into both deeper awareness and deeper connection with ourselves and, and the landscapes around us. So thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalyapeya Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit Emergence Magazine dot org.